to be here. I am Ramona, a member of the original Alan group in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Hi. I've got a few chills looking out there over you all. Because this is my third trip to the Arkansas State Convention. I remember very well the first one I attended in the 60s. It was the first out-of-town, well, out-of-state talk I had ever made. And it was in Little Rock. And Bob and I came and had one hell of a time getting here. They offered to fly us, and Bob said we'd better go first class. Good always go first class, you know. So we were ever getting to Tulsa. Our daughter kept the car. We waited on the plane, and they canceled the flight. <laughs> we arrived in Little Rock about 8.30 or 9 o'clock that night. We could have driven to Little Rock in 10 times in the length of time we flew. And I'll never forget, we were sitting on the plane, and Bob reached over and patted me and said, Honey, don't ever forget. I put you where you are today. <laughs> and I've always tried to remember that. I stayed awake all night that night trying to think of words of wisdom, trying to wonder why God ever brought me to that place, and what was I going to do. I spent last night, 20 so odd years later, lying awake thinking God has reason I know he does I wouldn't be here if he hadn't had a number of reasons for many years but where are the words of wisdom because of myself I have none in between those nights I came nine years ago my first announcement when I got here behind the podium was to tell you I had a grandson, my first grandson. And my heart was running over with joy. I have one other bit of good news now. I don't know what this has to do coming to hot springs, but just a couple of weeks ago, Leslie called. And they're expecting a baby. They're first. So now, baby, I'll get that little granddaughter. <laughs> and my cup runneth over. I thought last night, what could I say? Because I have nothing to give you but the love you've given me. I don't know how to express that. Because love is God, and God is love. God is you, and you are love. And I thought, well, the only way I know, I guess of my own words, to tell you is the one story that I have. I came here into this fellowship with a little, tiny, weeny, hard, scary knot in my chest that I guess I called a heart. And it beat fast and it beat hard 
and I was lonely. And I've been here in this fellowship of Alamon for 22 years. And every one of those years, that heart has grown and grown and grown and grown with cells of love. And you people are one of the, each one is one of those cells. And sometimes it feels like it's going to burst. And I know God's making room for some more. So I come here to tell you how that came about. Because it was not of my own doing. I was raised on a ranch by an Indian father and a mother who had no Indian blood at all. And it was a real beautiful life. I can't say that I had any problems. I, I have one sister, and I adore her. And we grew up, and uh, everything was neat. Loved, protected, and cared for. I think the neatest part of that was this father of mine spent a great deal of time with me. And when he wanted to talk to me, you know, these father and daughter talks, my horse would be saddled and down to the barn, and I'd see that when I ate breakfast. Daddy would never tell me when it was going to be or when we were going, and I would just be thrilled to death. And off we'd go, riding down into the little old bitty hills out there the little old bitty jack black tree, blackjack trees. And he'd find a little old bitty creek. And if it was springtime or summertime, we got off our horses, tied the horses to a tree, took our boots off, and put our feet in the water. And uh, then Daddy talked. And he talked about dignity, and he talked about love, and he talked about the beauty that God had given us. And he told, us, told me that the Great Spirit, as he understood him, had given this world to us for us to care for. And for me to look around and look at it and enjoy it and love it and cherish it and care for it. And he took me back to the days that he was a boy and the grass was stirrup deep. And now the grass in Oklahoma is not ankle deep. The weeds are waist deep. And I felt good and I felt loved and I felt cared for. And my heart sang. I had a mother and I have a mother. She's still identically the same way. Isn't that great? She'll be 83 years old next month. She stands tall and erect. She's a beautiful woman, determined, very determined, and she hadn't changed a bit. She had a great deal of ambition for her two daughters, and she was going to make of us what she'd always wanted to be herself. So she took typing lessons, so she could type messages, and we would learn all these great things that we were supposed to know. So she said, she'd put it up in the mirror, and then a lousy place to stick messages. I do that to myself now because I learn them reading them in the mirror. And one of them was, 
If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Whoever wrote that crap was crazy. Well, I tell you what, that one damn near killed me later on down the road. The other one was happiness is not something you find, it's something you create. God. Now that one damn near killed little old Bob later down the road. <laughs> well, you know, I got up to marrying age. I decided I was the marrying age. Everybody around me was getting married, and I didn't want to be left out. And an old cowboy walked by. And he was minding his own business. And you know what? He had the whitest cowboy hat and the fanciest cowboy boots and the shiniest set of blue eyes in between. And right then, another white man bit the dust. <laughs> oh, Bob never hit, knew what hit him. And that began the greatest war in the state of Oklahoma between a cowboy and an Indian. Now Mary Pearl says, I don't look like an Indian. And if the hair is gray, and I don't have all that 40,000 pounds of turquoise, I grew up enough to get my own identity. <laughs> no. I'll be able to tell you the frank truth if you're interested. You want to know? I ran out of money to dye that gray hair. <laughs> So I just went gray and cut it off. I don't know me either, so if you feel this can, you know, irritable and discontent, so do I. I look in the mirror and I think, who are you? And I think, oh, I'm me. But it's real neat. It's real neat. Well, Bob and I moved to a ranch that belonged to his family, had been in his family for years, and I could just see it. We were just going to move out there and live happily ever after. You know, that's the way every story ends. You know, I don't read a book that doesn't end happily ever after. I'm just now getting where I can read some of those. So I knew this is the way it'd be. It'd be like Roy Rogers in Day 11, just riding off into the sunset. Uh -huh. You see, I did not know my husband was an alcoholic. I did not know alcoholism was a family disease. And I did not know that I would get sicker quicker than he did. All I knew was I loved him. And he drank a little bit. That all cowboys do. Just a little bit. Well, it was no fun problem. You all, you know, for us at the beginning, it was just absolutely great. I liked this drinking. Uh, we went to town on Saturdays and got groceries and... Then on Saturday night, we went to the honky tonks. Oh, God, those honky tonks were good. I even liked those things. You know, that was back before the cowboys were popular. And uh, <laughs> we'd go out there, and if you have kids, you don't know nothing. You don't know nothing about living until you were in one of those old Oklahoma honky tonks. And we'd go in, and that old honky tonk music would be a playing, you know, and there'd be those old cowboys, and they'd be a drinking. And Bob would drink, and he wanted to dance, and he danced better than anybody, and it was just a ball. And Bob was a quiet person, and when he drank, 
he got cute. And he said cute things, and I laughed louder than anybody. And then we would go home, and it was Saturday night. And Bob was affectionate when he drank, and I really liked that. So there wasn't a thing in the world wrong with our lives, nothing. But you know, there's not one of us in this room that can say, in no on November the 12th of 1976, alcoholism struck our home. That's that's not the way it happens. It steals in. It steals in. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And there you are. What happened? The same house went the same little old honky-tonk. And that same old honky-tonk music was a plan. And Bob would join in. And he said funny things. And everybody else laughed and I didn't. I was embarrassed. I wanted to go home. And he wanted to dance. And I wasn't going to dance because I didn't dance with a drunk. I wanted to go home. And there was a fight in the parking lot over who was going to drive home. And then we would get home. And Bob wanted to be affectionate. <laughs> I was not about to have anything. <laughs> I would teach him a lesson. <laughs> you know, years ago I heard there was an Al-Anon theme song, and I do believe it. And that's this. Don't come home a-drinking with loving on your mind. <laughs> so, that began the years and years and years that I became a teacher. So I was going to teach him a lesson, and he wouldn't drink so much anymore. So... He slept in bed and I laid awake on the couch. And that began the period of making up the speeches. You know, I'd, I'd lie there and I'd think of all these things to say because I knew Bob did not know what he was doing. If he did, he wouldn't do it. He didn't know what he looked like and it was my responsibility as a good wife to tell him. Now I'm going to tell you boogers. And I think there's some of you here. You are the hardest people in the world to talk to. You've got to find just the right time. I mean, we can't just come talk to you anytime, particularly when we're going to talk sense. Did you ever try to talk sense to a drunk? When he's drunk? <laughs> You'll just laugh. And while you're talking sense, listen to me, and he goes, ha, 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 ha. They're going to move us out of my house. Oh. <laughs> well, I'd lie there on that couch, and I'd make up these speeches, and I'd get one that was just right. And I thought the time to talk sense was 6 o'clock in the morning. And I'd go in there, and I'd shake old Bob. And I'd say, Bob, I want to talk to you. And he'd say, Ramona, leave me alone. Let me sleep. And I'd say, Bob, I want to talk sense to you. And he'd say, Ramona, please, just let me sleep. And then I would give him a blow-by-blow -blow description of what he had done the night before. <laughs> oh, Bob prayed for the silent treatment. <laughs> he never got it. 
companion right here at this time began a role that I was to play for many, many years and one that I have to be constantly aware of or I'll play it again. And if anyone asks me what I think is a prime qualification to be an Alamar, I say to become a fixer. And I became a fixer. I would fix people and places and things. He, and he would never have to drink anymore. I never looked at me. There wasn't anything wrong with me. There never had been anything wrong with me. The only damn dumb thing I'd ever done in my life was marry him. <laughs> and I told him so. And when I got him straightened out, everything would be fine. So I set about fixing, and I decided he needed a baby. Then he'd stay home and act like a father, and we'd be a family, and we'd settle down, and then this is all stopped. So I got busy on that project. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed that. And guess what? I had a baby all by myself. You would have thought it was the Immaculate Conception. What do you call it? I've forgotten it. The Immaculate Conception. For all the credit I gave Bob. When that child was born, and that little girl, Bobbin, and Bob came in the hospital room, I looked at him and I said, Bob, you've got everything. You've got a ranch. You've got quarter horses. You've got cattle. And you've got a little daughter now. And above all, you've got me. And you don't have to drink anymore. I didn't know Bob was an alcoholic. And I didn't know alcoholism was a family disease. And I didn't know I was getting sicker. There was nothing wrong with me. All that was wrong in my life was right there. In a cowboy hat and fancy cowboy boots and bloodshot blue eyes. That little baby was only six months old when I took my first trip home to Mother to teach him another lesson. You know, I was years finding out that he was stupid. He did not learn my lessons. Well, Bob did exactly what I planned. He let me stay a couple of three days and came after me and said the famous words, I love you, Ramona, and I love Robin, and I want you to come home. And I won't drink so much anymore. That's all I wanted to hear. I grabbed the baby, diapers and bottles, and waved goodbye to Mother, and I went home. I taught him a lesson. <laughs> well, you know how long it lasted. And I got sicker. And I decided he needed a son. I decided. I decided what Bob needed. I knew what Bob thought. And, you know, I sit in our Alan group in Oakmonkey, the little old original Alan group that I dearly love. And I hear them tell me, well, he thinks, or she thinks. And they tell me what the Alan, the alcoholic thinks. And I say, you don't know what he thinks. When you give up and forget that, because I spent years saying I knew, I know what he thinks. And then I would react. And that was what I did. I knew that if he had a baby, Little boy, he'd settle down and teach him to be a cowboy. So I got busy again. And this time I prayed, oh, God, 
let me have a little boy so Bob won't drink anymore. Then was when I started the second period of praying to God and telling him what he was to do so Bob wouldn't drink anymore. This was the thing that I searched for. And I didn't pray, not as I know prayer in my life today. I just got up every morning and gave God his marching orders. <laughs> I told him what he'd do and what I'd do. And old Bob, we had that baby boy. And I looked at old Bob and I said, yeah, you've got everything. You've got all of this, Bob. What's wrong? What is wrong? There was nothing wrong. We were sick. The family disease of alcoholism. What are the effects of the family disease of alcoholism? I think the greatest effect of all is the loss of communication. Bob and I didn't communicate. Communication is the art of listening as well as the art of speaking. And Bob and I didn't hear each other anymore. We did a lot of loud yelling. I did a lot of loud yelling. Loud yelling, I'll correct that. But we didn't hear each other. Because we built a wall between us. And that wall was built of fear and guilt and hate and remorse. And he was on his side dying and I was on my side dying. And we didn't hear each other anymore. What about your families? What happens to your family? I know what happened to mine. Here I was, a grown woman, the mother of two children. And I ran to this daddy who'd always fixed everything. Always. There was nothing my daddy couldn't do with my attitude. A grown woman. And I said, fix it, daddy. Fix it. I can't stand it anymore. And you know what he said? Get out. We don't want you to live like that. We don't want our grandchildren living in that kind of a home. Get And I could not tell him, I love this man that doesn't ever come home. I love this man that writes hot checks. I love this man that stays drunk. Because love is approval, isn't it? And I didn't approve. Oh, my God, I didn't approve. I wanted the world to know I didn't approve. And I was so sick that I had it totally confused, the meaning of love. So I couldn't talk to my folks anymore. I just had to turn away. Then I went to his folks. What happens to the family? the mother and father of the alcoholic. Here I went, I don't know what happened with you all, but here I went, trotting over there, and I decided that I'd sick his mother on him. And I thought I had it made then. Why, that old lady had done everything that she'd ever set her head to. I'd watched her, and I thought, if I get her on his back, we got it made. And I said, help him, help him, for God's sake, help him. He's your son. He's going to kill himself in that pickup. He's going to kill somebody else. Help him. And do you know what she said to me? She looked at me and she said, Well, Ramona, he wasn't an alcoholic when he married you.
Well, I'm going to tell you that'll send you home a trotting. And I didn't talk to that old heifer anymore. I never did either anyway. The loss of communication, the breaking back, the pulling back, the withdrawal, the withdrawal from life. I was cutting and moving and moving. What happens to your friends in a family and the disease of alcoholism? You know what friends are. Friends are what we have now. Friends are the people that come in and out of your house any time they want to at the day or night. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You can't have that going on when you got full-blown drunk. You know, I listen to these AAs. I'm, I'm so fortunate. One of the greatest blessings that God has ever given me is the ability to love an alcoholic. And I've been so fortunate to get to be with so many of them. And I listen to them chatter and talk, and I eat it up. And then they get to talking, you know, the stories where they hid their bottles. And I get the biggest kick for that. Baby, they don't know nothing. Take a lesson from us. We tried to hide a live damn drunk. There ain't no place you can put one of them boogers. They just call out, you know. There we'd be, and have company, and there'd be old Bob. And I'd say, I don't know what happened. He's never done this before. And he'd pull the same trick the night before. So you cut away. You withdraw. And again, no friends. And then what happens to the children? I don't know about your children. I know about mine. And I placed scars, deep scars on those children. But you see, they understood their daddy very well. Daddy drank this, and he did this. Daddy wouldn't do it if he weren't drunk. Daddy wouldn't do that. But what is the matter with mother? You know, I could just be getting along pretty well with the kids. Very well. Talking to him, cooking supper, and here'd come old Bob. He'd walk in the back door and into the kitchen, and he'd look at me, and he'd grin, and one of those blue eyes looked like this. <laughs> and then he'd say, Hi, honey. And he'd go around the kitchen and down the hall to the bedroom. And that would just make me so damn mad I could kill him. And whatever I had in my hand, I'd swing it across the room, hit the refrigerator, and say, God damn him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And back I'd go, right behind him. Two little kids right behind me. And there's old Bob, stretched out on the bed, cowboy hat over his nose. And I'd say, what in the hell do you think you're doing? And he'd lift that hat up and say, taking a nap. <laughs> Pull his hat back down, and I'd say, not in my house you don't. You don't come home drunk and sleep it off in my house. Bob never argued. He just got up, put the old cowboy hat on, and back down all he went, and back to the kitchen and out the back door. Me right behind him, two little kids right behind me. If I was getting an old pickup, and I'd say, where in the hell do you think you're going? 
And he'd say to get some sleep, Ramona. Just get some sleep. And I'd say, you better not. And he'd be driving down the driveway. You better not. If I catch you in bed with somebody else, Bob Belford, I'll kill you. Father just go on. I'd say, if you leave tonight, don't you ever come back. And he was gone. I yelled my last insult. I hate you. <laughs> People five miles away knew Bob was not to come home that night. I hated him. <laughs> Two little kids would look up at me and say, Why did you run him off, Mom? <laughs> I didn't run him off. Don't you say so either. Get an any yourself. And boy, what do you do if you live a crazy woman? You eat. Now, hurry up, get in there and wash your dishes. Now, go to bed. Mama, it's not dark yet. And I'd say, did I ask you if it was dark? Get in the damn bed. What do you do? You go to bed. A little boy and girl slept in the same room. And they couldn't be separated. And then began the night. You know those nights? You know... I would stand there and think, who's he with? Where is he? If I could catch him this one damn time, I'll make a believer out of him. Where'd he go? And the jealousy. Oh, God. And the light would switch on about 11 o'clock in the bedroom, and two little kids would pop straight up, and they'd say, what's the matter, Mother? I'd say, come on, come on. Where are we going? What to get Daddy? Where in the hell do you think we're going? And then Robin would always say, Well, why did you run him off for? And I'd say, I didn't, and if you say so one more time, I'm going to whip you, Robin. Get in the car. Boy, they got in the car, and off we go. Around every beer joint, every honky-tonk, for a ten-mile radius, around the VFW, and around and around, for fear he'd hidden his car. And then we'd go home with, and I, you know what I found out when those kids got grown? They'd laugh and tell me about the number of times they saw Daddy sticking. <laughs> and they never told me why. When I'd say, is Daddy stick up there? They'd say, no, Mama. And you know, they weren't trying to take care of Daddy. They were just trying to keep me out of jail. And then a little boy and girl had to sleep together, and they'd whisper. And then it would get late. What happens to us between the hours of two and four in the morning? What happens to us? The loneliness of owning. When we know we're the only people in the world like this. And it's not going to ever be over. Ever. It'll go on for eternity. And I began the pleading and the begging, Oh, God, please, if you'll just bring him home tonight and he doesn't kill anybody, God, I'll do something in the morning. I'll take care of it, God. Please, God, let him come home tonight. If you will let him come home, I won't ever cuss anymore. Oh, God, please, please. 
the bargaining, the begging, the pleading. That's what I call the prayer. And I'd walk and I'd cry and I'd beg. You know what it's like? You know what it's like? Every one of you know. You've all been in those hours of the loneliness and the hurt and the pain and the fear and the awesome eternity that you're going to have to live through it. Too sick to die. Too scared to try to die. And no way out. No way. And then the front door opens. And there's a woman. <laughs> One blue eye looking just like this. Just grinning. And he says, Hi, honey. Oh, God's answered my prayer. He brought him home safe and sound. Not a scratch. One. And I am so grateful. I try to kill the son of a bitch with my bare hands. The last break in communication was with God. And I hope and pray you never had the one I had. I had a God not of my understanding. It was one I'd heard my folks, my mother's folks, my father's folks, never talked much about God except quietly with each other. My mother's folks came and they argued about it all Sunday afternoon after fried chicken dinner. And that was the God of my understanding. And he sat up there and punished you if you were bad and rewarded you if you were good. And I knew why my prayers weren't answered. I knew he was punishing me. I wasn't good enough to get a prayer answered. So I decided I'd become good. Oh, Lord. Heaven help a man when his wife decides to become good. If he's not drunk, he'll get drunk. I told God he'd sober up Bob and I'd get good. And I took over his work and I went to Sunday school and I taught Sunday school and I went to church every time the church doors opened. And the church I belong to, you kneel when you pray. And I'd wait till the very last, you know, before the processional. And then I'd come right down the center aisle and I'd have a child by either hand. And I'd bow my head as I walked down the hall. And then I'd sit next to the front row. And I knelt. And I knelt longer than anybody. I thought I looked better that way. And I just prayed that a shaft of light would shine on me. And those people could see how good I was. And then church was over, and right down the center aisle we drove. And me smiling. Sweetly. And they'd say, isn't she sweet? And look at those precious children. Isn't it a shame about her husband? <laughs> the more they said, the gooder I got. The gooder I got, the drunker Bob got. Oh, he just loved it. Because I was off all the time doing my good works. PTA, Brownie Scouts, Cub Scouts. I heart drive, cancer drive, and I ran for Mrs. Oakmont. Oh, Bob just ate it up. I didn't have time to be home and bitch. 
Well, a bargain is a bargain. I don't give a damn who you make it with. And I made mine with God. And I told him what I'd do and what he'd do. And I did my part. And old Bob was drunker ever. Now, a bargain is a bargain. I don't give a damn who it is you make it with. He didn't keep his, his bargain. I quit. I absolutely quit. And right then was when I decided God was a white man. I wasn't going to have no part of his church, no part of his good work. It was a bunch of bulls. And then this became the next stage I went through. <laughs> you know where you go along and you don't give a damn what you look like? You actually don't care? And that was where I was. I told Bob for years he was killing me. And he'd never listened. So I decided to show him. And I went around looking like, mm. oh, Lordy, I get to, I got to tell you all this story. I intended to leave it out. But there might be somebody new here, and, and they might have done something like this. Very few people have. But a great many people have thought about it. And I was in this period of don't go to church, don't do nothing, just go around, Bleh. And it was Sunday morning, and the kids like to go to Sunday school and church. And I got up. That was the first mistake I made. And I had this long hair that came down to my hips. And it wasn't fashionable. And it just went blah. I didn't comb it either. And I had an old robe. And it buttoned down the front. A few of the buttons were gone. And it came about, oh, about four inches above my ankle. Three, maybe. And it was just beautiful. It was a bright brown, orangey, yellow. <laughs> and I had an old pair of floppy house shoes. And Mother was up for the day. <laughs> the kids wanted to know if they could go to Sunday school. And I said, sure. Daddy took them. I didn't care where they went. They wanted to go to Sunday school and believe all that crap. You had that. It wasn't going to work. They went to Sunday school and church. And Daddy picked them up and brought them home, and they were happy as larks. They came in, those old children's eyes were just dancing. There's nice people out there. They had a good time at Sunday school and church, and they had cookies, and they had, you know, punch, and it was real nice. And here was old Daddy, and he was just bouncing. He felt real good. He'd been to VFW and had his punch for the Sunday morning. <laughs> and everything was fine. And here Mama was, just like they left her. Old robe, old house shoes, and stringing hair. Oh. And Robin said, what do we have for lunch? For breakfast. And I said, nothing. Same thing they had for breakfast. I think you have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, they used to live in with me. So I did fix herself the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they go in the breakfast room, and they sit down to eat it, and Daddy's in there with them. And they're laughing and talking and having a good time. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I can't stand that. When I'm miserable, by God, the whole world's going to be miserable. So I just went there to break it up. And I did. <laughs> All I had to do was walk in. <laughs> Robin says, Mother, can we go to the picture show? And I said, How? We don't have any money. And I looked at you-know-who, so they had no why. 
Daddy, will you give us the money? Sure, Daddy will give him the money. He just cashed a hot check at the VFW. <laughs> and I said, how are you going to get there? I'm not going to take you. Daddy, will you take us? Boy, with that old bob was up and that cowboy hat was pulled down. He said, come on, let's go. He hadn't known how he was going to get back to VFW. And I said, you better know. If you go with him this time, you'll walk home. Don't call me because he's not going to come after you. He never does come after you. Blah, 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 blah. They're going out the front door and I'm screaming, don't call me. Walk. And they're gone. And I turn around and walk in the house, slam the door, pull the drapes, and lay down on the bed. And I cry. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. And all I do for those kids, that weren't for me, they wouldn't have anything. And I cried because, you know, Robin could never have a wedding. Not like other girls. Because Bob would be too drunk to give her away. And I cried about that. And Robin was ten years old. <laughs> and what about Rusty? Rusty needed a college education. Every boy has to have a college education. And he wasn't going to have any because his daddy would be drunk. He'd never have the money. And it was time to enroll him. And I cried about that. And Rusty was certain. <laughs> well, long around four o'clock, the phone rang. I got off the bed and answered the phone, and it was a little girl saying, Mama, could you please come get us just this one time? Daddy didn't come. And you know what I did? I gave a 15-minute tirade over the phone. Didn't I tell you so? Your daddy is a drunk. Walk home. Don't call me. Above all, Robin, don't ever get married. And then she begged, Mama, please, just once, just once. Finally, I threw the phone down. I ran out. Old robe, old house, flying hair. And I get in this old car. I'll never forget this old car. And that Oklahoma wind, it was a hot day, about like today. And that old wind was a whipping right out of the south. And I, got, I had to roll both windows down. And in I went to town. <laughs> wind blowing my hair out of the side of the window and me just a driver. Right up in front of the picture show. And all the little kids then old mother went to show on Sunday afternoon and there were the parents all picking him up, looking like cancer. And there I came. And boy, those kids flew out there. And they got in the car and old Rusty laid down in the back seat. He didn't want anybody to know I was his mother. I can see Robin yet. She was sat up there beside me, so straight. And off we went, right down Main Street. Right down Main Street. And you know what's on the end of Main Street? Yeah. The VFW. Boy, I just slammed on my brakes, and I wheeled that old car in, and Mama says, Robin says, no, Mama. No, no, Mama. Mama, come on now, let's go home, Mama. Please don't. And with that, I stopped, and I was out of there, and I was up in the front door to the VFW was right on Main Street. And I was pressing the buzzer. They wouldn't give me a key. And I pressed the buzzer, and that old wind was whipping that old robe around, that hair was flying. And this fellow walked up and opened the door. <laughs> he just looked at me, and then he just sat back. 
I want to know I did not speak to him. Flash like that. And in I went, into the bar. And there were all the people sitting up at the bar, fully clothed. I did not speak to trash that would drink on Sunday. And back I go, those old hair shoes go, pop, 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 pop. That old robe gets a switch, that old hair gets a fly. Back I go to the bar, ballroom, and into the poker room. And there sits old Bob, right around the big old table. And he looks up at me, and those blue eyes got that big. And he pushed that cowboy hat, and he said, Hi, honey. I want you to know I didn't speak to him. That no count man drinking in a gambling, and I gathered up that old robe like this. And I made me a pocket. And I rounded that table, and I took everybody's money. Stomped my foot and I said, We're hungry. <laughs> there was dead silence. And back I went to the ballroom, through the bar. And I had that old robe gathered up to my navel, my dimes and nickels and quarters and edges of dangling. And they were falling out, and back I went, just as cotton. And I didn't speak to nobody. And ran and got in the car. And you know, I was in these programs. Oh, gosh, seven or eight years before I was honest enough to tell that story. <laughs> and it constantly reveals more to me. <laughs> I finally remembered that I had nothing on under that rope. <laughs> Sometimes I do reject honesty. I got in that car and I went home as fast as I could go. There wasn't a sound in that car. And I slammed the door and I ran in the house. And I fell back down on that bed. And I hated me. I hated me. What had I done? I had become a monster to fight a monster. There was nothing that I wouldn't have done to humiliating, to hurting. And I hated me. I didn't used to be like this. What had happened? He had done this to me. He. And I decided the only way it would be any better was to get rid of him. If I got rid of him, I wouldn't be like this anymore. I didn't used to be that way. I knew I didn't. So I filed suit for divorce. And guess what? It just plum tickled old Bob to death. He tried to divorce me one time. It made me mad and I wouldn't get it. No dirty drinking man's going to divorce me. If he didn't divorce me, I'd do it myself. So I filed suit for divorce. Bob was thrilled. His mother was out of her mind with joy. My parents were very pleased because they thought they had a sound daughter, sound of mind, sound of body. And you know, to this day, by the grace of God, my mother will never hear of it. <laughs> and I set about 
A little boy and a little girl loved their mother and daddy dearly. They knew their daddy was a drunk, and they knew their mother was crazy. But it didn't make any difference. Well, I got the divorce, and I had an orderly life because I ordered it, and nobody cost me. But I had things happen, circumstances that I could not live up to. I didn't have anything to blame, and I'd never been to blame for anything in my life. <laughs> I want to tell you all something. An alcoholic's the greatest thing in the world to blame. If you ain't got one, go get you one. <laughs> I tell you, I need one. I need one. I don't have nothing to blame but me. So these things kept happening. And old Bob was making cooing noises, and the children were playing stupid. And uh, the first thing I knew, he came to the house and said, Ramona, I want to talk to you. And you know what I said? Yes, Bob. And he said, I think it's time we set this divorce aside. And we went back together, and we made a home for this family like we should. And here was the crowning statement. And I will control my drinking. And you know what I said? Yes, Bob. Thirteen years of active alcoholism. And I said, yes, Bob. We've been married, I mean, we've been separated, divorced, five months and one week. We went to the judge and had that set aside. We came out of that courthouse. And I worked in an office right across the street from that very door in the courthouse. I never forget what had happened when I came down those stairs. I came down there and he was standing at the foot of the stairs with Bob's mother. And she greeted me and she hugged me and she kissed me. I have never had such a welcome. She had, you see, Bob had moved home. Bob and I went on a party that night for the, you know, the grand reunion, that second time around, you know, and all that stuff. And there was a big dance at the country club, and we went with all of our friends. And you know what happened? I got drunker than he did. I tied it on because I knew I'd played hell. And I knew I had been right back right where I started. The next morning, the first truly important thing in my whole life happened to me. The first truly important thing. I awoke, the children were asleep, and Bob was asleep, and I walked over and looked out the window in the trees, and I thought, Oh my God, what have I done? I'm right back where I started. Bob isn't going to quit drinking. Bob is an alcoholic. And I knew there was nothing I could do. Nothing. There was no act that I had not done. I had gotten down on my knees and prayed to him as a God in my life. I had gotten up and in 30 minutes taken a knife and tried to kill him. I had cursed him and tried to love him to death. I'd run him off and chased him to bring him home. There was nothing left. If there was, I probably would have been crying. But God, in his infinite mercy, let me see. There was nothing I could do. And right then, I 
totally and completely surrendered. And that's the point every one of us must reach, whether we AA, Al Nahr, or Alpine. That point of total surrender. And I surrender. And this is the part of my story I love. This is the glory and the dignity and the joy and the beauty and the love and all those things my father made me feel. That was what I felt on the inside when I was a little girl with my feet in the crease. And do you know now I'm right here and I'm in it. I'm in the middle of it. And I'm feeling those things. I'm feeling those things. Well, there's no way to tell you. There's no way to tell you. These were years that God had his hand charge of. And by his grace and his mercy, he'll have charge of the rest of them. Bob and I took a trip because he'd drunk up the ranch and the saddle. And he was trying to make a living for us. And he traveled, and I went with him to western Oklahoma. And we had a car wreck on the way back. And that led me to many hospitals to do something about my condition, my physical condition. And in New Orleans, where I was awaiting surgery, the second great thing happened to me. I was on that cart waiting to go into the room to have the x-rays of my brain and to start the surgery. And the second great thing happened. God allowed me to see me, not for what I thought I was, not for what I wanted you to think I was, but for what I really was. He had given me hands, and these hands are supposed to be gentle and show love and be tender. And I had made them into fists, and I hit everything that came close to me. The more I hurt, the harder I hit. I wanted to hurt back. He gave me a tongue and the ability to speak. And that tongue was just to say something to make somebody feel better. Just to say something to be of love. And I had lacerated a man and two little children with the sharpest tongue in the world. I shut them down. My tongue was my weapon. And the more I hurt, the more I slashed. And he let me see all this, all that I was, what I had done with his gift. This is what I've done with it. But the beautiful part about this thing was, he let me know he loved me. Just exactly like I was. Every screaming, biting, fighting into me he loved. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I decided to do something about me. Not for Bob Belford, not for two children, but for me. Because I couldn't live with me anymore. And there was no Alavon, but when the people's ready, God provides a teacher, and he did. And I was directed to him. Don't ever worry. Your teacher's there when you're ready. A young man named Tom, and that young man is still working away in the field of alcoholism. I never knew how he knew so much about AA and Al-Anon. That wasn't necessary. 
He was strictly there to teach me. And he took me down through those steps. And I gave up and I gave out and I wanted to quit. It ain't easy, you know. It ain't easy for none of us when we get here. That new girl that walks in that door there, man, she don't come there because she wants to. She's crying and she's hurting on the inside. And her world is crumbled. And that's the last place she has to go. The last place. And I don't want to ever forget that. And I want the arms of love to be open. And for that, I'm responsible. Tom introduced me the first time to love without judgment. I could have never taken that fifth step with him if I had not had love without judgment. Love without judgment is what we have in this fellowship. And I pray to God, judgment never darkens the door. Because when it does, love walks out. Well, Bob kept drinking. Tom told me to let go and let God, and I said I couldn't. And he said, well, let go and let Bob. Just get out of his way. Keep your mouth shut. And that was something I didn't know how to do. I read. I talked. He became my program, my sponsor, and my way of life. And things got better. Bob didn't know what was going on. I had signs all over the house. God loves me. Faith without works is dead. And he thought, oh my God, she's gone again. <laughs> you know Tom, what Tom told me? Tom told me that God loved Bob probably better than he loved me. And why not let him take care of Bob? And that was a hard thing to do. And I'd have to say every time he left, God, he's your boy. You take him. You love him more than I do. Take care of him. And he did. Bob had come home on Friday, and I gave God the weekend off, and we had held on Monday. <laughs> I didn't think he worked a 48 hour week. I asked Tom about this, and he straightened me out. And he told me to do these things. How does this program work? It doesn't work because you read it in a book. It doesn't work. You work it. And it was not, and it is not, and it is not now easy for me. But it is a way of life I want and I choose. And I wanted it then, and I want it even more now. Isn't that fabulous? For me it is. For me it is. Well, you know what else Tom told me? Tom told me that I looked like hell. He said if he had a wife that looked like me, he wouldn't go, he wouldn't get sober either. He'd stay drunk. And I was supposed to shine in God's glory. Well, if Tom said it, I did it. You know, I get a big kick out of this. Because, you see, I go to a lot of open AA meetings. And here comes the brand new AA member. He's got maybe two months of sobriety. And boy, he's just happy as a lark. And he's on cloud nine. And People are patting him on the back, and he's shaking hands, and he's just with it. And here comes his wife. She didn't go to Al-Anon. There's nothing wrong with her. And here she walks. <laughs> and everybody laughs, and she goes, 
And I look over and I laugh and I know how she feels because that's the way I used to be. I don't ever want to forget what I used to be like. Because today, the way I use today is the way that keeps me from returning to yesterday. And I don't ever want to go through that anymore. Well, I decided to get beautiful. And I went to work on that. I got me some cold cream, got my long hair caught up, and I got it blown up. That was when Buffon's hairstyles were in, and I got bigger than anybody. And I got this old white cold cream at the diamond store. And I went home, and it was on Saturday, and I'd been blown up. And um, I went off on Saturday night to BFW, and I got ready for bed. And that was a sight to behold. Now, when you get your hair blown up, it's got to last a week if you're as poor as I was. So, I had to spray it. Now, that means you spray it till it crackles. Now, you can't lie down before it gets dry, you get up flat-headed on one side. But when it got dry, then I'd wrap it up in toilet paper, and then I'd put a sleep cap on my head. Now, if I was blown up too big to put in a sleep cap, I'd put my pants on my head. Now, this night I had gotten sprayed up, wrapped up, my pants on my head, my white cold cream on my face, and I went to bed with my glasses on, you know, those little bitty things you look over, to read about a faith healing. I have gotten very interested in faith healing. Now, I've read everything on alcoholism, and I've read all this stuff, Tom, and he said I must keep my mouth shut so I, I read it. That was the way I did it, and I'd gotten on this faith healing. <laughs> oh, Bob came home from the BSW. He looked at me, and he went in the kitchen, and he got a drink. I think that was one that was necessary. Now, that's one I excuse him for. I don't think he could have ever done it. Came back in, and sat down in the chair, and looked at me, took that old cowboy hat back, and he said, What you doing? And I said, I'm reading a book. And he said, Hell, I can see that. And then he said, what's it about? Oh, I've just been dying to talk about. And you just don't go out on the street and talk to anybody about faith healing. You know, that's a spooky subject. And I looked at old Bob and I said, faith healing works. You know, the wife got big and he says, it does? And I said, yes, it's proven medically, scientifically. Faith healing works. And with that, I threw the book down and I was on my hands and knees, put the bed, looking him right in the eye. And I said, now, I couldn't do it myself, but if I can get rid of all the resentment and the fear and the hatred and just become a channel for God, all I've got to do is put my hands on you and say, heal, and you'll never take another drink again. Oh, Bob threw up those hands, he fell out of the rock and said, God dang you, don't you touch me. He didn't spare a drop of his drink. You know, that was the funniest thing I ever saw in my life. Here I am, my britches on my head, no bobs bouncing around, and I laugh. Laughter leaves the home when the disease of alcoholism comes in. And I laughed again. Listen to us laugh. We laugh better 
than any people in the world. I love the healing of the lepers. You see, only those who have suffered true pain have a well deep enough to hold pure joy. And I laugh. But you know what? Bob got in AA not because of me in spite of me. And I don't know whether he's here now or not, but if there's somebody here that I love dearly, he was here last night, but he had a bad cold. Are you here, Freeman? No. He didn't feel well. I saw him last night, and I was so grateful. Freeman is an AA member who lived in Tulsa. He made his first AA talk in Oklahoma. And until that time, Bob Belford had never identified. So he told me. And Freeman was the one that turned the button. And we began a life. And I, that was in January of 1963, and in March of 1963, we formed the original Alanine Group. Many, many things happened. But the greatest thing of all, you gave us life. We came to you with nothing. The only thing we had in common was our love for two children. We had destroyed our marriage. We came to you and we learn to respect you. And out of that, we learn to respect each other. And we loved you. And out of that, we learn to love each other. I am so grateful. There's no way I can thank you. For a marriage, a life, beauty, and dignity, and joy. Oh yes, there's been pain. Living has pain. But if I remember, the only bomb for pain is the joy of the love and the laughter. And from that, I come to you. There's no pain I cannot share with you. I had cancer, and I didn't use my program. Because I thought alcoholism was the only thing this program worked for. I didn't know it was the answer to any disease of body, mind, soul, or spirit. So I didn't walk in my group and say, I'm scared to death, I'm going to die. And I reverted right back to that punishing God. Because the only thing that I thought we went on here was for alcoholism. How little I knew. I went through the cobalt in utter fear cold blood sweat and kept telling myself I could do it. I never asked God one day for his help. Not one time. Because he was a punishing God right then. And then it was over and I patted myself on my back and said, you did it, Ramona, you got guts. And I went back to my program. I know today, and please hear me, there is no way that any dis-ease this ease of my body, of my mind, of my heart, of my soul is not healed by you and the practice of this program. That I know. That I know. Well, I don't know how long it was. 
sent the same old word said to me, Ramona, you have another malignancy. And thank God. Thank God. Because this time, I went back in that old bedroom where I'd cried when I wasn't going to pick up the kids. The old bedroom where I'd face your body. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, this wouldn't have come back into my life if I'd learned what I needed to know. Just help me. And oh, he did. And this is the third great thing that happened to me. He helped me. Because there was a special thing that happened to me when I was in that cobalt room every day. The place I had dreaded and laid in cold sweat, I went with joy. Because my awareness of my father was just as deep as my need for him. And my need was very strong. We have an emergency phone call for Gerald and Colleen Lackey. If you'll go out this way, they'll take you to the phone. And I learned there what, God, what love really meant. Love is not possession. Love is freedom. And I learned how much he loves us all. Every one of us. We're his children. We're his. Whatever state we may be in, we're his. And for that I'll always be grateful. You know, God hurts my father does the one I have in my life he hurts for me when I hurt because you see so many times I have to do it my way first while I didn't do it his way and he hurts while I'm learning that lesson I hurt when my kids are learning lessons kills me I don't like it and you don't either but sometimes we have to step back and let them learn, you know, do it themselves. Two months, I mean, two weeks after I had my last cobalt treatment, Bob had his first. Bob had never been sick a day in his life. I said it was because he's never sober long yet. Bob lived 18 months. He had terminal cancer. And then I saw the strength and the dignity and the power of this program come into play. This program glimmers and shines and turns like a jewel. And that phase will shine in your life. Whatever your need may be, this is the only way of life that I know will glimmer and glisten and turn. And the ray of light will shine for whatever you need. I know that. I know that. And I saw this one come. I remember we came over here to a convention. I think I was a chairperson. We walked down the hall out there. Franklin was here. Leslie was here. And the arms went around him and they told him how great he looked and how glad they were to have him. And he was pale, and he'd lost about 50 pounds, and his eyes lighted up because you nestled him in your arms, and he was safe. 
you know what, what you do to me. You nestle me many nights when I go to sleep. I think of you. How do you think you see God? I know how I see him. He came to us every day. I couldn't stand to hear Bob cough. They told me he would probably hemorrhage, and I couldn't stand it. And I'd just be in that kitchen, and he'd start coughing because he wanted a cup of coffee. And I'd say, God, I can't stand anymore. I can't. Do something. And the front door would open, and there you'd be. He got the coffee pot on, and things going. Better, isn't it? Oh, my God, it's better. You're there. We didn't walk alone. We didn't walk alone. I saw a group from Oklahoma City gather around his bed, the first and only AA closed AA meeting I was ever privileged to attend. And I saw the strength and the faith and the hope and the love literally go into his frail body. I am so grateful. Bob had two months having his tenth birthday. And he died sober. You know, I prayed that Bob would be healed. I never prayed for Bob to live. Now, I didn't choose that prayer. It seemed to be just given to me. I didn't have that much intelligence or wisdom. And God did. God healed him. And what is my life like today? I live in an apartment. That old house is gone. And I didn't think God liked apartments. And it was the hardest thing I ever had to do was move out of that big old house. My daughter has the old round table that sat in that breakfast room and it's got some burns on it where Bob was trying to sober up a drunk. I never go see her that I don't look at that table and love it. My little grandson eats at that table. And I thought, what's going to happen to me? God won't like apartments and everything will be different. Well, you know, I get to travel some and God goes with me wherever I go. Wherever I go, he goes with me. I'll go home tomorrow, and he'll go with me all the way. And I'll go up those stairs, and I'll open that front door, and I'll step in. And I don't know how, but he beats me up those stairs every time. And when I walk in, he says to me in my heart, Welcome home, child. I have a job. Many things in my life have changed. And I still resist change. But my father cannot give me a good gift sometimes unless he has to change something. Right now, I guess one of the pains that I'm wanting you to feel for me, and you are, is uh, I'm having to live through again my little daughter suffering from the family disease of alcoholism. 
I don't know whether my daughter or son, either one, are alcoholic. They, as far as I know, they aren't. But who knows? But her pain and her emotions are scarred. And I come to you today with the healing that you will give me. Because I've made amends. And I don't have to answer for what the solution will be. All I know that you've taught me to do is let go and let God handle He loves her more than I do. Nine years ago, I called her to tell her I loved her and thank her for my little grandson. This morning I called her. I couldn't talk to you until I told her again, I love you. Love is no longer approval. And I am so grateful. Because if it were, I would not be loved either. I'm sorry I've taken part of your life. But I thank you for giving it to me. Because you've given me life again. You've given me life again. I know God's in his heaven and all right with the world when I look out there at you. I don't know whether you can feel it, but I can feel it right now. You know, how did I know, how did I dream that the one thing I wanted most in life, the things my father told me about, would be a gift to me from a drunk, one drunk to another drunk, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, and out of that grew Alamos. I love Alcoholics Anonymous with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. You were the answer to my prayers. You gave me the one thing I thought would change my life. And I love Al-Anon with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my being. Because you gave me a way to be me. You set me free of the bondage of me. From which my misery comes. What a gift. What a gift. What I offered you today was so little in return. But may you carry with you this. I love you deeply, sincerely, and by the grace of God, it shall last forever. Amen. Thank you.